0: You're listening to the Writers' Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Catherine Howe about her new book, A True Account, Hannah Masary's Sojourn Among the Pirates, written by herself. Catherine is a New York Times bestselling author and an award-winning historian and novelist. Welcome to the show, Catherine.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, before we turn to the book itself, let me ask you some general questions about your writing habits. Mm-hmm. Um, are you an outliner or what oh, they call a pantser? Definitely. Fly by the seat of your pants?
1: No, I, I, could, I really admire pantsers. My good friend Julie Glass, who is an author who lives in the same town as me, and she, she's won the National Book Award in her, uh, she's written The House Among the Trees and Three Junes, and she, she's a pantser. And she just sits down and writes her way into these incredibly like imagined interior worlds of these very nuanced people. And I do not understand how she does it. I feel like it's such a gift. Um, I am definitely a plotter. And it's so unromantic. Everyone's face always falls when I confess to this part of my process. But I use a spreadsheet. I use Excel.
0: Do you really? I, now, I do. You know, I've heard pros and cons. I mean, I had somebody mm-hmm. on the other day who said they felt outlining um, you know, was too confining. We yeah. got stuck with the characters.
1: Well, I don't, I don't stay beholden to it. I mean, I'll go back and tweak it and, and, and it'll be a variety, but I think, I think it arose because the very first novel that I wrote, The Physic Book of Deliverance, Dane, uh, I was working on while I was in grad school and I had no idea how to write a novel. I, I'm not a product of the MFA program or, or anything like that. And I thought to myself, you know, how do you write a novel? Well, how long is a novel? It's about 400 pages. Okay, so 20 chapters, 20 pages each. I can do that. So the very first time I did it, I I put, you know, 1 through 20 on the top and then a list of my characters down the side, and I slotted in who would be doing what and when. And the number obviously changed over time, and the the length of each chapter was hardly fixed. But it ended up being a really effective way of pacing out when things had to happen. And so I still use that method. Okay, whatever
0: whatever works. Now, are you... um some people tell me, and I can't do this, but they tell me they get up at three in the morning to write. So do you write at a certain time or a certain place?
1: Um, no, I'm you know I, I get up in the morning it's it's really so workmanlike. I get up in the morning and then I go downstairs and I have a young son, so you know we have our whole kind of morning thing that we have to do. but basically I you know I sit down at my desk like I'm going to work because I'm going to work and I drink my coffee and you know, before I had a son, I would sometimes get up and just keep sit down in my pajamas and start working, and stay in my pajamas until it was the you know late afternoon because I was so engrossed in what I was doing. Um, but I feel like the best writing advice that I ever got was from a New Yorker profile of uh, Nora Roberts that came out a few years ago, and she said her big advice for writing was um, ass in the chair. And I was so inspired by that, that there's a little, there's a glass museum in Corning, New York. And I used to live in upstate New York. And I went to the glass museum in Corning and you can do like glass, like blowing, you know. And so I made a bowl that says ass in the chair, Nora Roberts, which is my tchotchke bowl on my desk, because I feel like it's the best advice I ever got.
0: Well, you know, Bukowski used to say, write every day. You might throw away half of what you write. Do you write pretty much every day?
1: Pretty much. I mean, since I'm a historical fiction author, primarily, I spend a lot of my time researching. Um, But when I'm in the drafting mode, um, I will write every single day. And I'll often give myself a word count assignment. And one of the things that's been so interesting about that as a method for productivity is that, um, you know, there'll be some days if my word count is 1500 words after I've done the outlining and everything, um, if my if my word count is 1500 words, some days, I'll hit it in a couple of hours, and it feels like it's great, and, it's, and I feel like I'm in the zone, I'm in the slot, you know, I'm going, and I'm working, and then some days, it's just torture. It's just, it's just like peeling my fingernails back one at a time, and like, you know, bef- before I was a parent, I would sometimes sit in the chair for, I'm not exaggerating, 12 hours until I'd gotten to my word count, and the thing that's so interesting to me about it is later, when you go back to revise... Um, I was never able to tell which, like, was I in the zone or was it a torture day? Like, I, like the quality of the work was the same, which is surprising because I feel like I still on some level subscribe to this kind of Byronic fantasy of inspiration that work produced in a mode of inspiration is somehow superior. Um, but, but yeah, it's not. Okay. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, let's turn to the new book. Okay. Which mm-hmm. I'm going to by shorthand call A True Account. Sure. I have to ask, why a pirate story?
1: Oh, because pirates are amazing. Pirates are <laughs> awesome. I've, been, I've actually been obsessed with pirates for a while. And I think part of it is because, I mean, who isn't obsessed with pirates, first of all? But second of all, the only, um, the only hobby that I have is sailing. I'm a sailor. And so um, naturally, I'm drawn to stories of you know daring do at sea, and especially stories of women at sea, um, which are a little harder to come by. And there are a couple of very famous accounts of pirates in the golden age of piracy. And the golden age was broadly the late 17th and early 18th century. There are a couple of accounts of the golden age of piracy of women disguising themselves as men and going around being pirates. And uh, and so I was kind of struck by that and wanted to learn more about it. And then I ended up uh, stumbling upon a story of a, a distant relative of mine who was not a pirate. She was a ship captain's wife in the 19th century. And they, but she, she went with her husband. They went around the horn. She dropped off a load of cargo in California. They went over to China to pick up a load of, of laborers who are going to be brought over to work in California. And on their way back across the Pacific Ocean, her husband died. And then they ran out of fresh water. And the crew and the passengers started to mutiny. And she held them off with a pistol until she could signal like whatever the nascent form of the Coast Guard was at that time in order to be rescued. And after that, she sued for her percentage of her husband's ownership in the profits of the voyage, and then went back to Beverly, Massachusetts to buy her own house. And she lived until like the first years of the 20th century. And I just loved thinking about this woman, like, like imagine passing her on the street, like a little old nice Yankee lady, having no idea that she's been around the horn, and she put down a whole mutiny on a giant clipper ship by herself. And, and, and I thought that that was yeah. so tough. And so her, her name was Hannah Missouri. And so ah. I stole I stole her name for my female pirate kind of as an as an ode to her.
0: OK, well, in the book, you have dual narratives. Okay. You have um, one that's set around 1726 and the other around 1930,
1: 1931.
0: Mm-hmm. What are the things when, when you do a dual narrative? What are the things you have to be careful about so that you don't break the narrative uh, of people reading?
1: Um. Well, it's to some degree, you want a certain amount of break because you don't want to be confused about where you are in the story and whose perspective you're occupying. Um, that being said, I typically write books in order. So I don't write one timeline and then the other. I usually, and I've, I've written in dual timelines on a, a few different occasions in my work before. And so usually I like to weave in some sort of callbacks between the time periods, like sometimes characters will eat the same food or they'll like notice the same kind of thing. And that's partly because as a historian, I'm kind of interested in the ways that history kind of bubbles up to the surface in everyday life, um, even when we're not necessarily aware of it. And, uh. But but generally speaking I think it's necessary to have a pretty distinct voice between the time periods so that you can understand where you are and whose perspective you're inside.
0: So you're not writing the two time periods separately and then weaving them together. Okay. No.
1: No, I when I when I plot out a book I plot out both storylines around the same time and and figure out which is going to go where and when the breaks are going to happen.
0: Okay. So in these dual narratives we have uh, in one narrative, the case of Hannah and the mm-hmm. pirates, and in another, characters named Marion and Kay. Uh, mm-hmm. Marion is a professor, Kay is a student, mm-hmm. and they're actually looking into this manuscript that mm-hmm. Hannah has, you know, somehow left behind. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, in the in the book, you talk about Hannah having been, quote, bound out, close quote. Tell us what that means.
1: Yeah, Hannah is... Um for lack of a better word, she's, she's a working-class girl. So in the early modern period, at least in the in the North American colonies, it was not all that unusual for a family, if they had a lot of children, to not necessarily be able to support all of them. So, for example, one of the most famous instances of someone who is bound out is um, Anna, uh, is uh, Abigail Williams in the Salem Witch Trials. I've written a lot of Salem fiction, and so Abigail Williams, who's the, the afflicted girl who kicks off the Salem Witch Panic, is an 11 year old girl who's been bound out to service in a relative's house. And so Hannah has been bound out to help with, we gather that it's a distant relative of her mother's and we never really, even she doesn't really understand how they're related, but it was pretty common to be placed with someone who's kin to you. Um, And so Hannah is a teenager. We also never exactly learned her age. She's about meant to be about 17 or 18 years old. And she has been working. She's never been educated. You know, she is, she is a worker and has been a worker since she was a child. And she's living through this kind of just post-Puritan moment where her culture is really on the cusp of moving from the early modern to the modern. And it's a really interesting, I found an interesting moment to try to occupy her perspective and her life, you know, to understand how she would see the world in that specific moment.
0: Well, she's a fascinating character. It certainly drew me in and I, I really enjoyed it. But Thanks. there's another character... Who, it turns out, because I do try to do my research, Uh was actually a pirate. And he makes it into the book. And that's a gentleman named William Fly. Yes. uh, Yes. Who also I found fascinating only because he showed no remorse.
1: Exactly. Um, Exactly. How did you learn about him? I don't remember when I learned about William Fly, but William Fly was a real person. Um, So the action in A True Account opens with Hannah otherwise having a normal day. She's sort of a girl of all work in a tavern that was a real tavern called Ship Tavern which even in 1726 had already been standing for 100 years. So it's, it's not there anymore, but she's in what is, at least for Boston, uh, in the 18th century, a pretty kind of ancient space. And she, she wants to go to William Fly's execution. William Fly was a mariner who was who led a mutiny because of, quote, hard usage, unquote. And so he and some other guys got together and took over their ship, renamed it the fame's revenge this happened in 1726 and then they went out raiding off of cape hatteras which is perhaps most infamous for being the raiding grounds of uh, blackbeard about 10 years before and being able to sail a ship and being able to navigate were two actually very distinct skill sets so a lot of people in the 18th a lot of people is relative but many mariners in the 18th century could operate a sailing vessel but very few of them had the skills necessary to know where they were going so they ended up capturing a fisherman and trying to force him to navigate them to uh, Martha's Vineyard in order to take on water, because they'd rechristened their ship the Fame's Revenge. And that by this point, because piracy was punishable by death, they, it was it was really like kind of a Thelma and Louise sort of situation where they're just they're just they're going to go until they until they can't go anymore. And so um, the fisherman fit, uh, tricks them, however. And he must have tricked them pretty substantially because to, to think you're going to Martha's Vineyard and instead accidentally like go out the outside of Cape Cod and end up outside of Boston is actually a pretty, it's like right. 150 nautical miles. It's like like a big mistake. Um, but nevertheless, the fishermen tricked them and, and led them until they were off the coast of Boston and uh, and they were captured and brought brought to trial. And William Fly was publicly tried and the person who presided over his trial was Cotton Mather, who is the same divine who had presided over the Salem witch trials a generation before and they were he was publicly hanged as a spectacle so a historian of piracy who I admire very much Marcus Redeker, has described the the treatment of pirates as an example of state terror because of course the state was had a vested interest in securing the secure the in securing maritime trade so they wanted to dissuade people from turning pirate in whatever way they could So William Fly was publicly hanged along with his Confederates, and then, if that wasn't bad enough, he was gibbeted, which is when your dead body is hung in chains in a public place and left to rot. And William Fly was gibbeted on a rock called Nix's Mate, which is one of the Boston Harbor Islands, and left to rot there in 1726. And so William Fly's trial and execution and gibbeting is kind of the precipitating event in Hannah's adventure in a true account and, yes. uh, and then I, I got a little you know imaginative with um, some of the details around things that happen because Hannah of course in this story is a fictional person um, but I wanted to explore you know Hannah's from essentially the same class background as as William Fly you know I wanted to explore some of the ways that um, power is deployed um, in culture, and well,
0: one question I have, and actually mm-hmm. I, I interviewed somebody recently who writes historical novels and very successful, mm-hmm. and she said, you know, Mike, I never give historical character, actual historical figures, any dialogue because mm-hmm. I'm concerned I'm going to screw that up. Yeah, is is that an issue you deal with when with somebody like Fly or somebody else
1: in some well, of your? Well, every, everything that William Fly says in my novel is something he really said, um, because because uh, his trial was, was publicly, it, it, was, it was noted down and it was published. You know, that was part of the kind of rhetoric of terror. Right. Um, I do put some historical dialogue in the mouth of a, another character named Ned Lowe, who was a real pirate. But at the same time, he doesn't say that much. And what we do see, mostly we see Ned Lowe do things. And most of the things that we see Ned Lowe do are things that there are primary sources that suggest that he actually did them.
0: So it's a matter um, of doing your research and, yeah. and, and knowing that. Now, let me yeah. ask you this. Whenever you do a historical novel, I've always been curious, mm-hmm. how do you know how much actual history to put in
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how much to fictionalize? You know, there, there are some historical novels you can read and you're reading the fictional narrative and then there might be a paragraph that says, mm-hmm. you know, well, the Confederacy did such, you know, they give you the... Yeah. With it. Uh, how do you know how to juggle that?
1: That's a good question. And I think I think it sort of varies from project to project. But one thing I like to do in every novel is I like to have an author's note at the end, which explains some of the source base, some of the historiography and some of my, the rationale for some of the choices that I made. So, for instance, in the author's note for A True Account, um, A True Account is by far my most violent novel I tend to be a very PG13 writer I' I'm a, I'm, I'm a big chicken there's not a lot of sex you know there's not a lot of violence there's an unusual amount of sex and violence in well, true Now account. wait a
0: minute. now wait a minute Hannah has a little fooling around in there
1: she does she does okay, but right. but, there, but there's a, there's a reason for it and, right, and, certainly, and certainly in the in the instance of the violence that's represented in a true account I'm at pain I take pains to explain that I didn't make any of it up I understand. it's actually something that really happened.
0: Um, no, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Oh, that, that being said, you know, there have been times, like in my very first novel, I do, care, I do fictionalize a real historical person, Deliverance Dane, who was a person who was accused late in the Salem Panic. She was a very minor character, which is why I felt some liberty in being able to fictionalize her. There's not much that we could actually conclusively say about her. Um, but I did end up having to change the outcome of her life, for narrative purposes. Mm-hmm. And and you know, and a few readers called me out for it, which I which I completely respected. You know, they're like, why would you change this one, you know, important thing? There's so few things we know about her, but we do know this one thing. And so that's one reason that I am increasingly much more likely to make my main character be a completely fictional person who might interact with real person
0: persons. Right. So so people will know listening, one mm-hmm. of the key pieces in this book is that when they discover Hannah's manuscript, there Mm -hmm. is a reference to a hidden treasure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so they have to decide, is this manuscript legitimate or not legitimate? And that brings us to two other characters, Marion, who is a professor, and Kay, Mm -hmm. who is a student. Now, I couldn't help noticing that Marion visits the Mad Hatter. Are you
1: familiar with the Mad Hatter?
0: Well, I've done my research. Hey. And so this is a place that actually existed in the 20s and the early 30s next to what I understand is the Pony Stable Inn. Mm -hmm. And so where did you come up with the idea to have Marion visit and go to these places?
1: Yeah. Well, so the, the question of gender and gender performance plays a role in a true account. And that's not only because Hannah ends up having to disguise herself as a cabin boy to ship out on this pirate ship that she ends up joining. Hannah also has kind of a fluid sexuality, which we kind of conclude is partly out of a sense of like claiming power for herself. Like you get the sense that it's partly kind of defensive in a way, but it's also partly because it's one of the ways where she is able to claim pleasure for herself in a life that is otherwise very hard. And similarly, Marion is a queer woman in the, 19, in the 1920s when the story is unfolding. It, it ends in 1930. And so she is also kind of in a, at a slippery moment. She's living in a moment where you could actually be arrested for having the wrong gender presentation. And I was thinking about that moment in time and about Marion in part because I recently worked on Anderson Cooper's book, Aster. The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune. And we have a chapter in that book. That book traces the history, not just of the Astor family, but also of what the word Aster came to mean. And one of the chapters that we have in that book that I'm really proud of is about the Astor Hotel Bar, which was the gathering place for gay men, especially gay servicemen, for basically the first half of the 20th century until it closed in 1966. And that got me thinking about pl- places of safety um, and moments where your signification or your identity put you at a distinct kind of risk and what kind of places would would offer um, safety and succor. And so since a true account is so much about the ways that women have to change their, their appearance or their comportment in order to make themselves safe, um, it seemed natural to have Marion who lives such a watchful part of her life because of that part of her life. Um, I wanted to see how she would feel, you know, the more time she spends thinking about Hannah, the more kind of bold Marion becomes. And I wanted to see what Marion would be like if she were offered the kind of power and safety that, that Hannah is trying to claim for herself.
0: You know, let me say this for folks that are listening on that. You said that like Hannah's sexuality is fluid. I didn't find that to be overbearing in any way. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. like you're making a political statement uh, in in reading it. I mean, it was kind of there in between the lines a little bit, but nothing, you know, in my mind, at least nothing that might offend somebody. Mm -hmm. Now, Marion's cohort is uh, that gal named Kay. Mm -hmm. And um, Kay's a bit of a publicity hound.
1: We We learned that. We learned that eventually. Yeah. Well, Kay is another example. So... Part of what I like to explore with Marion. So, a true account opens feeling like it's just Hannah's story. It, it's, it's in first person, and you're kind of going along on this adventure. And then, pretty early on in the book, you realize that actually you've been reading over someone's shoulder, and you've been reading over Marion's shoulder. And part of what Marion is trying to do, she's been brought this manuscript by Kay, who is her undergrad at Radcliffe. And Kay, you know, Marion is sort of constrained by her own. Perspective by like she looks at Kay and she's she sees one thing and she doesn't necessarily see Kay in her full complexity yet.
0: All right, I want to interrupt you here though, because I I found Marion. Tell me if I'm reading too much of this. I found Marion's character to be consistent with someone who has, let's just say, an overbearing father who does make an appearance in the book. Is that a fair statement?
1: That is absolutely a fair statement. Yeah, part of what Marion is trying to do is trying to come to sort of come into her. Everyone in this book is is looking for power where they can't find it, except that they're all looking for it in a different place. And they all are coming and are all coming to that quest from different sets of privileges. You know, Marion herself is actually from a very privileged background and, and her privileged background informs some of the false assumption, assumptions that she makes about Kay. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't, the fact that she's from a privileged background doesn't mean that she's not also looking for ways to distinguish herself or ways to claim power for herself.
0: Well, they're all well-drawn characters and, and easily to pull you in. And speaking of characters, so fictional writers will tell me often that if they create a good character... Especially one they've lived with for an, a year or two, mm-hmm. um, the character will help write the story. Mm-hmm. In fact, I one time had a, a fellow on, an author on, who said sometimes my characters will say, "I'll write something," and they'll say, "No, I'm not going to do that."
1: Right?
0: <laughs> if yeah. you had the experience of, of when you're writing a fictional character, and now Hannah, you have told us who she's based on a bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, with that, her helping write part of the story.
1: I don't know that I would personify it in quite that way. I mean, I've come, I've, I've come to, at at certain moments, I've realized that something has to happen to a character that I don't want to have happen. You know, that happened in a physic book too. I had, I realized I had planned for a certain character to survive her part of the story. And I came to realize that that was bogus, that like that was not narratively honest and was not what should happen. And when that, when I made that realization, I was actually really depressed. I actually started to cry and I called a friend and I was like, I have to kill her, I don't want to. You know? <laughs> and, he, and he was like, well, look at it this way. He was, he, it was really sweet because my friend who's also a writer, um, actually his name is his name is Will Heinrich. He writes um, art criticism for the New York Times and your listeners should definitely check out his work because he's amazing. He's also a novelist. Um, and he said, well, look at it this way. And I appreciate that he took it seriously. He said, well, you know, she's living 400, like 300 years ago, like she'd be dead either way. And that makes, that did make me feel a little bit better. That was sort of, you know, a little bit more pragmatic.
0: So do you live, you live with your characters, right? When you're writing your book, I mean, kind of jot down notes when you think of things and give them characteristics in your notes and things like that?
1: Well, I kind of the way that I usually work is I become interested in a period of time first or like a set of circumstances. So I knew I wanted to write a golden age of piracy novel and I knew I wanted it to be, have a woman at the center of it. So I spend some time in the period and, uh, you know, looking at primary and secondary sources. And then I try to come up with a character who I think authentically belongs in that period. That's why like Hannah, I spent so much time thinking about like, what does it mean if you are, raised by Puritans in this post-Puritan moment and you're uneducated. Like she's going to have a lot of biblical references peppering her speech, but she's also going to be kind of a skeptic about them. She's also being dragged to meeting every Sabbath, whether she wants to go or not. So she's, she's going to have a different relationship with, you know, religion or with, with things like that than, than people a generation older than her. Um, and so once I feel like I have a handle on who a character authentically is, then I can see what that character is going to do. So okay. I actually usually arrive at the plot points last when working ah. on a novel. Okay. And uh, and that's one reason that sometimes people ask me how I'm able to keep my brain in two different time periods at once. And perhaps it speaks to like the innate, you know, eccentricity of someone who's drawn to this line of work. But I find it not challenging at all to move between Hannah's voice in 1726 and Marion's voice in 1929 they both felt thoroughly familiar to me i felt like i understood how each of them thought and what each of them would assume and what they would be afraid of and like you know it felt organic to me to move between those two people
0: so you create your characters first and then your plot evolves organically is that what you're saying all right well let me end with this because we're going to run out of time Okay. Um, fiction writers um, i've often been curious about this and, and maybe this relates to Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, you create a character, you put that character in certain circumstances and so you have to figure out how they get out of them or how they deal with them. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself through Hannah?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I might've learned that I'm kind of a coward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I f- so many of the things that she goes through, she goes through like a, you know, a wild storm at sea. She, you know, she goes through this mutiny. She, She has to do some really like, active like fighting she has to you know there's so many things skills that she doesn't have have that she has to immediately acquire and uh you know and in many instances like I say I'm a sailor but I've never had to be on a you know a four and a half rigged schooner in uh, in a hurricane you know I never would I would never want to like I you know I can point to probably the worst wind situation. I've been in a, in a in a sailboat and it's, you know, 30 knots, which would make her roll her eyes. All um, right.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, folks. You've been listening to the Writers Forum and I've been speaking with author Catherine Howe about her new book, A True Account, Hannah Masary's Sojourn Among the Pirates, written by herself. Pick it up. It's really entertaining and enjoyable. Catherine, is there a website or other social media site that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and about your writing?
1: Absolutely. I have a website, which is com. I am on Twitter still as at Katherine B. Howe. I'm on Instagram as Catherine B. Howe, where you'll see sailing pictures in addition to book pictures. Uh, I'm on Facebook as Catherine Howe. I'm on Goodreads and uh, I just joined a sub- I just joined Substack, actually. You can also find me as um, Catherine B. Howe on um, Substack. But any of those are linked through my website, which is CatherineHowe.com, where you can also learn more about a true account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates. And also, in the spring, I have an edited volume coming from Penguin Classics called The Penguin Book of Pirates. Ah. So if you're interested in learning more about the, the real history of Golden Age piracy, um, I've got that in store as well.
0: Oh, that sounds great. And how, folks, is spelled H-O-W-E. Mm-hmm. Catherine, thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I had a great time.
0: Folks, music for the show is provided by Valerie Hunt Jester, and the show is produced by our very own Tyler O'Brien. Tune in next Tuesday at 4 p.m. or Wednesday at 5.30 a.m. for the next segment of the Writers' Forum.